If you have your Bibles with you, please open to 2 Peter. And we're going to go to really some of the most profound verses, um, the most profound in Scripture, maybe definitely dealing with the resources that God has given us uh, to please Him. I'm going to begin, though, thinking about um, in Exodus, when Moses was sent by God to demand the release from Pharaoh of the people of Israel. And many of you know that story. Many of you have heard the story of how Pharaoh responds. If the people have so much time to come to me and demand freedom, well, we'll make their life harder for them. So I'm going to read a little bit from Exodus 5, verses 7 through 9, and you'll see why. So Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and the foremen, saying, You're no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. I don't know much about making bricks in ancient Egypt. Apparently straw is a big deal. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose upon them. You are not to reduce any of it, because they are lazy. Therefore they cry out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men. Let them work at it so that they will pay no attention to false words. I bring this up because I want to encourage you this morning that 2 Peter is not a cruel letter. This is not a make brick without straw kind of letter. And this is not a make brick without straw kind of sermon. When I read 2 Peter 1 verses 1 through 11 in a minute, you'll see that Peter does indeed give a challenging command to God's people. He does give a challenging command. But God is not a cruel master like Pharaoh. He's not going to be asking you to make bricks without straw. The challenging command, and I'm going to bring it out so that you see it. Because really the, the, the reasoning in verses 3 and 4 will build us up towards verses 5 through 7. So I want you to, to, to it's kind of an a incomplete sermon. By God's grace, he'll be satisfying its own, but it's, Peter's going to tell us how we fulfill the command of verses 5 to 7, although we're not going to focus there this week. It is a command, as you'll see, to grow with diligence, to grow with exertion, to grow through effort. But God is not going to ask you to do something, dear saints, which he has not equipped you for. And that's the encouragement of these verses. In verses 3 and 4, God supplies all the straw that you need. So let's listen to God's word together. And pray that our hearts are willing to work for our good master, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read from 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. These are the verses we'll focus on this morning, 3 and 4. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, his glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And now we're getting ready for the command. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, and that's, and that's the command, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. 
and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Let's begin by praying. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given. We thank you for the kind of master that your son is and for the hope that there is in this message. Yes, the command uh, we see in verse 5, Lord, that you've given us to, to, to exercise exertion, to, 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 to exercise effort, to be diligent, to make every effort uh, is a strong command. We are to add to our faith and to our virtue and to our love and to our brotherly kindness. Uh, you have called us to grow. But we thank you, Father, for the rich resources of your word we see in verses 3 and 4. So, Lord, as these uh, are, are very tight verses with, with a ton of theology, I pray, Lord, that you would bless me with lots of clarity, that you would give us all wisdom, that we would have hearts that are ready to uh, be encouraged, that we are ready to utilize the resources that you've given. We pray, Father, for your glory, that we'd be the kind of people increasingly transformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would give our hearts resolve, that we would seek to be as obedient and as pleasing to you as possible. And yet, Lord, we would do this only through the resources that you've given. In Jesus' name, amen. This, this, this morning, Peter describes this responsibility in verse 5 to apply all diligence. Or if you have your ESV Bibles, it says to make every effort. Apply all diligence, make every effort. It's exhaustive. And, it, and this is exhausting work he calls us to. Peter is going to write to motivate our continual exertion and growth, our sustained effort toward holiness, our passionate pursuit of conformity to Christ's character. So it's good to ask ourselves, have you been applying diligence in becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been working at following his commands? Have you been exerting effort at growing in grace and godliness. Well, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4 provides the motivation you need to exert effort. So this morning in 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter encourages God's people with the provision of both God's power and God's promises, both God's power and God's promises, so that you'll have confidence to exert effort in pleasing him. This morning is about you exerting effort. And, and I know we're not going to preach through verses 5 through 7, but you all, if you know Jesus Christ, know where you need to grow. At least you know some areas. You know what it means to work at growing in godliness. This morning is going to give that encouragement. So Peter's going to encourage God's people with the provision of both God's power and God's promises so that you'll have confidence to exert effort in pleasing him. So we're going to see two reasons to exert effort. And the first is... Exert effort because God's power provides re the required resources. Exert effort because God's power provides the required resources. He gives us all the straw that we need. 
excuse the analogy. So let's first look at the source of where these resources come from. The source of these resources, we're going to look at this in the beginning of verse 3. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, seeing that his divine power has granted to us, the New American Standard Bible will preach from, it says, seeing that, the ESV has as, and it's a very small word in Greek there. What the New American Standard is trying to do is trying to show with this seeing that, that there's a connection between verses 3 and 4. Peter naturally expands upon the prayer of verse 2. In verse 2, he said, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And it's almost as if Peter's saying, speaking of that knowledge, since I'm thinking about that knowledge, seeing that, his divine power, and he launches from thinking about that knowledge. But Peter is not taking a, a, a detour here. He's not getting sidetracked by himself like I sometimes do. This is a strategic expansion. He's building their confidence while leading them to the challenging command of verse 5. So he says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us. Well, who's this, who's this divine power? It says his divine power. Who does that divine power belong to? And commentators go back and forth. Is, is, is this... Is this God's divine power? Is this the knowledge it describes of God and Jesus our Lord? Is this God the Father's divine power? Or is this Jesus our Lord's divine power? And the best Greek grammar really is that this his is a pronoun, and the pronoun refers back, if you remember your grammar, to an antecedent. And the closest antecedent is Jesus our Lord. So this is probably, the, 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 the clearest Greek is that this is referring to Jesus our Lord, although it's possible Peter's not making too clear of a distinction because he has already called Jesus God. The grammar points specifically to this being Jesus's power, seeing that his divine power, that Jesus's divine power, it's Christ's own power, the power of God the Son. This is the power through which Christ made all things and by which Christ holds all things together. That's what it says in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created. By Christ all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, what you can see and the angels, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, referring to all of the angels, all the demons, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the divine power. Jesus is holding, even at this moment, all things together. And that divine power is going to be encouraging to us because he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. This is the inexhaustible, immeasurable power of Christ. The only limit upon it is that Jesus submits completely to whatever the Father says. It's willing submission to the Father. Peter saw glimpses of this power of Jesus. Peter, who wrote this letter, he saw the lame walk and the withered hands restored. He saw the blind be made to see. He saw the dead brought back to life. He saw laws of nature bent to Jesus' will as 5,000 were fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. He saw the dead raised. He saw storms stopped with a single word. He saw Jesus' power to even raise himself. Jesus' divine power 
is directed towards his people. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us. To grant is, is to bestow. It's more of a formal word than simply to give. It's, it's not just gives, although that's not bad. It's bestow or he grants. It's what someone who has power does to someone who doesn't. Those who come to know him, and we're going to talk about what this knowledge is more. Those who have experienced grace from him, who have peace with him, have this divine power. So this is the source of our resources. The source of our resources is Jesus' divine power. Well, these resources are sufficient for us. And Peter describes the sufficiency of these resources. He continues, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And you can't see it in our English Bibles. In the Greek, that word everything is, is the second word of the sentence. It's, it's, it's really as or seeing that everything or as everything. Peter puts that everything first because that's really what his focus is. He, he, he wants you to get that, that sufficiency of what God's divine power is bringing to you first. Everything. God's resources are exhaustive. Everything that is essential for life and godliness. Life here is not just talking about the things that we need, like, like, like air and food. It's talking about our new life in Christ. And really, he's probably not making too big of a distinction between life and, and godliness. Like, oh, he's giving what we need for life and for godliness. It's for a godly life, a new life which is alive to God, a life which is devoted to him, a life which is seeking his pleasure. And godliness, the, the, the root in the Greek is the idea of good worship, good worship. The idea of living in God's presence. You could also maybe translate it as piety, respect, being devout. It's living and responding as if the God of the Bible is actually here, present. Always. He's always present. And this godliness is impossible without new life. And new life in Christ will result in godliness. Not perfect godliness all at once, but it will be cultivated in godliness. So Peter has this joint concept in mind. It's a God-pleasing life. It's a kind of life that's required by God and it's appropriate to God's presence. The false teachers that Peter was writing against, most likely to these churches in Asia Minor, had, had promised a life without godliness, that you could have God and not, not worry about obedience, that knowing God could be separated from pleasing him. But Christ's divine power has granted you who are in Christ Jesus everything you need to live in God's presence now, a humble life, a holy life, devoted life a joyful life, a thankful life. It's what it is to live in his presence because he is here. Our God is a consuming fire, yet he's gracious and merciful. Peter's not promising perfection now. 
but he is promising sufficient resources for an increasingly God-centered, God-pleasing holy life. A life which you are at home in your Father's courts. This life and godliness is a life of exerting effort. It's not a, a, a put the car into neutral and coast downhill kind of life. In ways, it is an uphill life. It isn't an exerting, it's a make every effort kind of life. But he's given you the engine. He's put the engine into your spiritual life so that you can go uphill bit by bit, ever increasing into Christ-likeness. There's a source of resources, Jesus' divine power. There's a sufficiency of resources, everything we need for life and godliness, a life pleasing to him. And where does these resources come from? There's a, the supply of these resources. The supply of these resources is through the true knowledge of him who called us. That is where Peter goes next in verse 3. Through the true knowledge of him who called us. See, not everyone has these resources. They're only ours if we have this true knowledge of him. And this word true knowledge is the same word that was translated as knowledge in, in verse 2. It, it is the kind of knowledge we have that begins at conversion. That begins when we see God as he first is, when we come into a right relationship with him, when we get who God is, when we come to him through faith in his son, it is that eye-opening, that blinding view of God, that, that humbling view of God, that understanding that he's the creator and I'm the, and I'm the creature that I am dependent upon him, that I've sinned against him, and yet he made this great salvation for me. It's that kind of knowledge of God. It is through the true knowledge, that experiential knowledge of him who called. Jesus is, and again, the grammar shows that, that Jesus is the antecedent for this pronoun him. It refers back, we look back, and the closest noun is Jesus here. And in ways, in Scripture, often, Jesus is not the one who does the calling. And we'll talk about the calling in a minute. It's God the Father who does. But 2 Peter is full of knowing Jesus Christ. We see it in, and I'll just give you a couple of verses here in verse 8 of this chapter. In chapter 2, verse 20. And in chapter 3, verse 18. So that would be five times total what it talks about knowing Jesus Christ. It's knowing him. This knowledge is the knowledge that Peter had in Matthew 16, verse 16. Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Is that kind of knowledge. Of knowing that Jesus is the promised Messiah, God the Son become man to take the punishment of sinners. It's the kind of knowledge that Paul has in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. Where he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, garbage, dung, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, having not my own, not, not, not having righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That is this kind of knowledge. Uh, knowledge where Jesus is our righteousness, where our only hope is in him. It's not righteousness that we get from us doing good things, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then Paul continues in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's that kind of knowledge Peter's talking about here. 
Our, the, God's divine power, Jesus' divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and, life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us. This is the kind of knowledge he's talking about. It's knowing Christ as our all, as our Lord, as our Savior, as the center of our life. It's knowing, like 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says, that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's that kind of knowledge that we know that when we see Jesus Christ, we see God revealed. Not all knowledge of Jesus is true knowledge. Matthew 7 verses 21 to 23, Jesus warns, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, true knowledge of Jesus Christ ultimately results in loving obedience of Jesus Christ. Those who know him do what the Father says. This is this true knowledge of Jesus. And only those who have come to know him, who have placed all their hope in him, who have submitted to him as Lord, have the capacity to obey him as he calls here have the capacity to please him in life and godliness, in living in his presence. So do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Have you become taken with him? Has he gripped your heart? Is he your delight is his company your comfort? Is obeying him your obsession? Is pleasing him your pleasure? Is he the treasure buried in a field that you've given up all for? Are you expectant for his return, waiting for him? This is what it means to know him. Has God given you the resources for obedience through the knowledge of him? Is this how you know Jesus? If it is, what, what, what resources there are? What good news is here as he calls us to obey? As he calls us to make every effort? Well, you have everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. And here we see the guarantee of these resources. The guarantee of these resources next. We saw the source of these resources is in the, the knowledge of Jesus. The sufficiency is everything pertaining to life and godliness. The supply of these resources is through the true knowledge of him who called us. And here's the guarantee of his resources. Him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The guarantee of the resources we need to please him is Jesus he is the guarantor of the resources. This call, when he says he, he calls us, this is not an invitation to come to Jesus. 
This is not a offer. This is not a, a, a door-to-door salesman pitch. You should come to Jesus. This call that's talking about here is an act of new creation. It is God's effective, faith-giving, regenerating, quickening, summon, so that sinners respond to faith and gospel. Maybe that God is doing that in one of you here t- today. That as you listen, you're like, I need this Jesus. I have to know him. I cannot live without him. Without him, I will be destroyed by this God who's a consuming fire. I love him. I want him. I will happily submit to him. That's happening in your heart this morning. That is what this divine call is. It's a call that accomplishes. It's Lazarus calling, it's Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. This is a creating call. It's God calling light out of darkness. Peter loves this call of God. We see it in 1 Peter 2.9. It talks about a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 5.10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's just not a, hey, anyone out there want some eternal glory? This is the miracle that God does in the hearts of his people. The people he's chosen to belong to him. Romans 4.17 God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And when God saves us, that's what he does. He calls into being something that didn't exist previously. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And he calls us to life. It says here, through the true knowledge of him, through the true knowledge of Jesus, who called us. So specifically, Peter's saying this is the work that Jesus does. Remember, Jesus saw, Peter saw Jesus call Lazarus out of the tomb. It's interesting to think about here. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and and, and excellence. And this is a instrumental use of the word by. And some of our versions have two, although the note will show by, and I think that, that, that that's the best idea here. It's not something we're called to that we should attain, but this is how God gives this call through Jesus Christ, by his own glory and excellence. See, our calling has its root in God's own glory, his splendor, his greatness, his majestic presence, His majestic presence is a terrifying reality to his enemies, but it's thrilling victory to those who adore him. It's his splendor. It's his excellence. That is is God's achievement and subsequent fame, specifically here, Christ. Christ's achievement. And, And it could be used in Greek of getting lots of wealth or accomplishing a great feat. But it could also be used of moral achievement. And Jesus was morally excellent. He was fame-worthy because of his righteousness. And I think that that's the focus here, that Jesus was praiseworthy. So this glory and excellence of Jesus, our calling is rooted into Jesus' glory and excellence. It is through his glory and excellence that we are called to salvation. Both of these words are in the Greek version of the Old Testament, 
well known by Peter in Isaiah 42, verse 8. It's a powerful, powerful verse. I am the Lord. God says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory, and we see that word, to another, nor my praise or excellence to graven images. There's God saying, I will not give my glory. I will not give my praise away. This is mine. See, God's glory and his excellence belong exclusively to God. Even the fact of Peter using these two words here shows that he's thinking of Jesus as God. Christ call upon those whom he saves is signed by my own glory and excellence. How were you saved? By Jesus' glory and excellence. In Jesus' name. See what encouragement there is to make every effort there. Your salvation is rooted in God's desire to bring glory to himself, to bring glory to his son. And so when you're looking in the mirror and say, but I can't do it. That's right, you can't do it. But this is not about you. This is about his glory and excellence. And he's the one who has called you. And in his calling, he has done that through you knowing him. And that knowing him has given you all that you need for life and godliness. So you can't do it, but he can do it. It's guaranteed by his glory and excellence. So brothers and sisters, you can grow. You can grow in holiness, and you can increasingly please him, and you can grow in love, and grow in faith, and grow in virtue, and grow in knowledge, and grow in brotherly kindness, all those things we see in 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 7. This is what the Christian life is. So in 2 Peter 1, 3, we see, and this is, the first part is we see that we can exert effort because God's power provides required resources. We see, I'm going to read it, seeing that his divine power, that's the source of these resources, has granted to us everything, the sufficiency of our resources, pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. That's how these resources are supplied to us in knowing Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, who called us by his own glory and excellence. And that's the guarantee of these resources. Brothers and sisters, if you are in him, you have all that you need to please him. You can change. His power towards you is not throttled. He's not standing on the water hose of the power going to you. His energy is not capped. Your sufficiency in him is unlimited in Christ. So if you truly know him, if his glory is at stake in your obedience, and that's a tremendous concept, right? His glory is at stake in your obedience. You can be certain that you have all the resources essential to exerting this lifelong, day after day, hour by hour, minute by minute effort in the pursuit of holiness. You can please him in your jobs. You can please him in your marriages. You can please him in your parenting or as children. You can please him in your testimony. These are, these are, these are tremendous resources. So is there a big call in verse 5? Yeah. Supply all diligence. Make every effort. Work hard. But he gives the straw. 
So first, we saw this first reason to exert effort is because God's power provides the required resources. But there's another reason in verse 4. Exert effort because God's promises guarantee that we will be transformed, guarantees transformation. Exert effort because God's promises guarantee transformation. We're going to look at these promises. We see the source of the promises in the beginning of verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. By. So it says, for by these. And what are these referring to? It's his own glory and excellence at the end of verse 3. Okay? This is the glory and excellence at the end of verse 3. Well, he's done something else in his glory and excellence. At the end of verse 3, it's how we were called and how we were brought to knowledge of him. Well, in verse 4, his glory and excellence, his, his perfection and his praiseworthiness is where our promises come from. He says, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. God's glory is the mountain. And the streams which flow down to us are his promises. They come from the mountain of his glory. And they trickle down to us. We receive his promises from him through his glory. Now we know that we have no right to participate in these promises in our own. But Jesus willingly brought us into a covenant relationship with, with the Father that he sealed with his blood. The foundation of our relationship with God is these promises. These promises that have been given to us because of Jesus' glory and excellence. And they manifest, this glory and excellence manifests itself in these freely given promises. It's how he wants to display his grace to us. So his glory is our guarantee of these promises. His splendor is our security in these promises. God's glory is tied to these promises. So just as much as his glory and excellence was the root of our being called and the knowledge we received because we were called, in verse 4, his glory and excellence is the root of these promises coming to us. We see the value of these promises next. So the source of them is God's glory and excellence. We see the value of these promises next. His precious and magnificent promises. They're precious. They're valuable. They're costly. They're great. These, these, these greatly valuable promises. These priceless promises. These, these treasure promises. These mind-blowing promises. Promises. And Peter doesn't say what these promises are here. It is unspecified. Now, Peter focuses a lot in 2 Peter on the future return of Christ. And so it's easy to think that these promises are future-focused. In 2 Peter 1, verse, verse 11, he doesn't specifically say promise, but he talks about there being an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And, and that's a promise. We will enter into God's forever kingdom in his son. This same word promise that he uses in 2 Peter 1.4, he also uses in 3.13 at the end of the letter. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He looks toward the eternal state in 2 Peter 
where Christ reigns. And that word promise, so, so the book is kind of capstone by these, by these references to promises. Now, there's a different word for promises used in 2 Peter 3, 4, as the false teachers were taunting, where's the promise of his coming? But there's that promise, Jesus' return. We see in 2 Peter 3, 9 as well. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come repentance. So the idea of promise in 2 Peter really focuses on the return of Christ. And that is a good candidate for the kinds of magnificent promises that he's talking about. But when we read the rest of verse 4, his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. This is not only something we're going to explain what that means. It doesn't mean you become gods. Uh, but it's not just something that's, that's, that's looking forward to eternity. Or having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. That also takes place in this life. So I, I think that we've got to be careful being too specific. What kind of promises is Peter talking about here? We should just say it's all of God's promises to us in Christ Jesus. It's the promise of salvation, of sanctification, of his presence, of future reward, of the resurrection, of the Holy Spirit, of abundant life of all that we need in this life to please him. See, these precious and great promises, they're not just future. The promises are working in our life now. So I want to remind what the, what the encouragement here is. We're to exert effort because God's promises guarantee our, trans, our, our transformation, our becoming like Christ. So how does God's promises do this? Well, we've seen that there's the source of these promises, for by these, by Jesus' own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. And here we see there's a purpose in these promises. These promises are doing something. These promises have a purpose. And this purpose is not just one day will be forever made like Christ. Although that's true. These promises have a purpose now. And he says, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. By these promises, you'll become partakers of the divine nature. And so there's two purposes in this promise. And the first is participation. There is a participation aspect to these promises. We participate in the divine nature. We share with God, as one commentator says, essential qualities that are characteristic of God himself. Now, obviously, there's certain things, uh, certain aspects of God's character that he cannot share with you, right? He can't share with you his independence. We are creatures. We're dependent, right? Only God is independent. He is self-sufficient. We are finite creatures. God does not share, in a sense, his, his eternality with us. We are eternal creatures, but we have not existed in eternity past, he, we are creatures that are tied to, to, to time and space. We are not omnipresent like God is. So when it says that we become participating or partaking or have fellowship with the divine nature, it doesn't mean that we become little gods. Instead, it's a restoration to that which was lost in the fall, of being made in God's image. And so what Peter promises here, that through these promises, 
so that by them you may, and that, that, that's not, that, that may isn't saying you may someday. It's just saying that this is the purpose. It's a, so it's a, a subjunctive here, the grammar Greeks, Greeks, geeks. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. It's being permanently remade at the moment of new birth into God's image to become morally like him. And we know that that is not perfectly done yet. We haven't seen the full product yet. We're still in this flesh. But we are new creatures now. And so we're made like God's son, Jesus Christ. And we participate in God's goodness. We participate in his love. We participate in his grace. We participate in his holiness. We participate in his righteousness. We are made partners with God in these things. We have new appetites. We are made, remade as one who rightly appraises God's worth. And that's what holiness is. When we see God in his word, we say, he's amazing. He's excellent. He's praiseworthy. I love him. Now, biblical uh, writers have, have, the authors have described this partnership in, in different ways. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about it as if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. That's, the, 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 that's, that's part of what this partnership is here, this, this being made, participating in the, in, the, in the divine nature. Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's that new life that we have because of our union with Christ. 1 John says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. This is this participation in, in the divine nature. 1 Peter 1, for you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and, living and enduring word of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. And that 1 John, that's 1 John 5, 1. This is that new nature. So we have this, this new partnership. This fellowship is the root word there. This participation in God's divine nature. We've been transformed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're in Christ Jesus, you have this new nature. It's why you want to obey God's commands. It's not because he's a harsh master. It's because you love him. It's because you love righteousness. And you delight in holiness. And you show mercy. And you make peace. And you exalt what is worthy. You have a new appetite, God's own appetite, for his glory. His taste buds for righteousness are your own taste buds. You love what's right. It's not like a child who tries to drink their, their father's cup of black coffee and takes a sip and goes, ugh. Right? That is not what salvation is. Salvation makes us, oh, that is delicious and I want more of that. That is what it means to be a participant in God's divine nature. We share Christ's life in, in a supernatural way I don't understand, but we're new creatures in him. That's the purpose of these promises, and that's why you can obey. Because you've been made new. You've also been liberated. So there is participation as part of the purpose of these promises, but liberation is also part of these purposes. 
Peter describes how this happens in verse 4. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. And then, and then he, he describes what was essential for that to happen. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And, and corruption is rottenness. It's depravity. It's destruction. It's death. It's whatever happens to a piece of fruit that's been left for too long. Now, this word can, can, can be used for both moral decay, but physical decay too. You see, it's everything in, that, that happens to this world that's been marred by sin. It's the physical as well as the spiritual. Both self, soul, and flesh have been corrupted by sin. Now, all, all corruption in the world, all death has a common cause, and it's lust. Having escaped, and we'll, we'll talk about the escape point, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This lust, this corruption began with Adam's lust to escape being creature. But instead of escaping being creature, he lost his divine nature. He lost ways in which he was like God. He became ruined. His, his, his taste buds were for wickedness. See, corruption has continued since Adam as all men strive after what God has forbidden. And they delight in what God disdains and they hoard what God hates. And they grab after what God grieves for. This, this lust, this, this craving of what God refuses results in corruption. We are corrupt and it results in more corruption, in spiritual death, in physical decay, in eternal punishment. And that is all that the world had, had it not been for God's grace. It would have just been Adam and Eve having child after child, generation after generation. And it would be all corruption, all death, all punishment. But that is not God's plan. He had given great and precious promises. See, without escape, the spiritually dead, and that was all of us, brothers and sisters, would just doggedly go after the same sin again and again with an unrelenting hunger for more. Our own glory, our own pride, our own exaltation, our own sinful appetites, our own cravings, our own lusts. It had God not rescued us. But sharing the divine nature, being born again, is, is synonymous here with escaping the corruption. It's synonymous with being liberated from lust, of being released from this rottenness that plagues every human. That's what happens when we believe God's gospel. And if you are here this morning knowing that you are a slave to your sin, knowing that that rottenness is, is, is deep down and that you haven't escaped it, your whole life has been ruled by it, there's hope for you in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 5 verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. He who believes him who sent me. If you believe in God the Father sending his son as the rescue for your sins, you pass into eternal life. You do not come into judgment. You pass from death to life. 
There is hope for you to escape the enslaving corruption of sin. And the hope is in his son. For by grace you've been saved through faith. See, partaking of the divine nature is incompatible ultimately with the rottenness of lust. And, and, and we may try that for a while. If you are a Christian, if you're trying it, you are miserable. Right? You, you, you are like, I am a dichotomy. I love what God loves, but I'm doing what God hates. And it is miserable. And there's hope for you in these verses in Jesus Christ. Because God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Now, maybe you need to learn some, some, some practical skills. Maybe you need your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you. But everything you need for life and godliness is through the true knowledge of him who called you. See, the false teachers that Peter was, was combating was saying, no, no, you don't need to worry. You can have God's divine nature and enjoy whatever sins you want. It's at the heart of almost all false teachers. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says that Jesus died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's what this making every effort is. Say, this day belongs to Jesus Christ. These, these however more hours you're going to be awake, these, these eight hours, these nine hours, these ten hours, twelve hours, these all belong to Jesus Christ. 1 John 3, 9 says that no one who is born of God, who participates in this divine nature, practices sin. And the idea is an ongoing domination of sin. Because his seed abides in him, because God has given him new life, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. So, brothers and sisters, if you know this morning that you are enslaved to sin, come and talk to someone. Talk. Talk to me. Talk to one of the, of the care group leaders. Talk to anyone around you. Don't, don't, don't do the impossible. And we're going to see that, that the prognosis of living that way is not good. At the very least, you're not going to know whether you're saved. God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. So, 2 Peter 1, 4. So, in verse 3. We saw that we should exert effort because God's power provides required resources. Everything we need for, for life and godliness. Really? There's no excuse. And yet, we know there's lots of sympathy in God's word. We, uh, I say that cautiously. We are in the flesh, right? We know that we have a merciful high priest. We know that we are going to keep repenting until he perfects us when Christ returns. But we have everything we need for life and godliness. We can consistently grow. We can make every effort. We also must, in verse 4, exert effort because God's promise guarantees our, tra our transformation. And now I'm going to do what I did with verse 3. So, for by these he has granted to us, and this is the source, right? By Jesus' glory and excellence. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. We see the value of those promises. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Here's purpose number one. We participate in the divine nature, having our appetites transformed, having our love changed, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And there's a second purpose, our liberation from lust. If you are in Jesus Christ, God has guaranteed your participation in the divine nature. He has rescued you from the corruption that's in the world by lust through his promises. 
And so this is why, brothers and sisters, we have to be exerting effort. I know we haven't looked at what that means in verses 5 through 7, but I know all of you already, if you're in Jesus Christ, you know ways you want to grow. I I bet any one of you could say some simple steps of what growth look like, what it would look like to grow, even a baby step of what exerting any effort would be, or every effort. So you've got more than enough already this morning to be putting this command into practice. In fact, we're going to see, I'm not going to say we're going to pile on the bricks, but we're going to say, wow, he really calls us to a lot of growth in verses 5 through 7. So that's why he begins here with, 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 with this sweet promise that he has given you all that you need for life and godliness, that he's given you these precious promises that guarantee your transformation because you've been engrafted, in a sense, into God's own nature. Because you have escaped, you've been liberated from enslaving lust. So we have two tremendous reasons to exert energy, to make every effort, to apply all diligence, to grow in Christ-likeness. Because God's power provides the required resources, because God's promise guarantees our transformation. The Lord Jesus Christ is a good master. He's not Pharaoh. He doesn't say make bricks without straw. In fact, Instead, he says in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is why his burden is light, because he gives you all you need for life and godliness, because he has rescued you from the corruption in the flesh, and he's part, allowed you to participate in his own divine nature. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do rejoice this morning. And we thank you for your word. And uh, um, I know that, that uh, these verses here, you and your sovereignty, have, have really put so much theology into these two short verses. And Father, I pray that we would uh, grow in grace and godliness through the knowledge of your Son, I pray, Father, that we would indeed see Jesus as our master, as our Lord, that we would not shirk away from his commands as if they are in any way burdensome, as if there's something wrong with, with, with your commands, and whether they be commands that we be people who love your word, who meditate on it day and night, or whether it be people who, who flee from sin, or, 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 or people who make disciples. Lord, there's no, there's no command, there's no instruction that you give for any of our roles in our life, or any command towards righteousness, which is burdensome. Lord, they're all good because you are good. You are a good master who gives good laws and what you call us to do in verses 5 through 7 to make every effort. Lord, I thank you that this is your goodness to us. Lord, you are not some wicked pharaoh. So, Lord, I thank you for the great encouragement even before we look at these verses at the hope that there is. Thank you, Father, for giving us in your Son everything we need for life and godliness. And I pray that we would know Jesus more, that we would know him as our Savior, we would know him as our Lord, that we would know him as our Good Shepherd. We would know him as, as our light. We would know him as our, 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 our bread of life, that we would know him as our great high priest. Lord, that we would so love Jesus Christ and that we would have all the resources through that knowledge of him, and Lord, that then we would uh, 
hold to your great promises, Lord. What, 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 what a promise that we would be made again like you, that we'd participate in your divine nature. So, Lord, we thank you for these resources here, and I pray, Lord, that we would leave encouraged to exert every effort. And, Lord, I pray, Father, that if today does not go the way we want, if we are not yet perfect, which we won't be, Lord, that we would go to you again today with these promises, and that they would be on our heart tomorrow morning as we head off to our works or take care of our kids, Lord, and that they would be on our heart at lunchtime, Lord, and that we would be so filled with joy as we see your great and precious promises that we would wonder again at them, Lord. I thank you for your word for revealing to us the treasures that are in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.